Well, good, good evening. What a beautiful day outside today. Amen. Uh, I'm going to brag on one of our church members who's here tonight. That's uh, Gary McGilvery. Monday was the Texas Baptist golf tournament. And uh, Gary and Bruce Barlow and Steve Gilbert and uh, Richard Teague got second place in the tournament. For, out of 30... Out of 31 teams, I'm bragging on you now, out of 31 teams, they got second place. Let's give them a hand. Because that's almost as good as the first place my team got last year. Oh, wow. I'm just kidding. (laughs) All right. Well, let's open with a word of prayer, and we'll ask the Lord to be with our time tonight. It's good to see everybody tonight. Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful day, this weather. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, uh, Lord, in our, in our lives, over our church. Uh, Lord, we do thank you for uh, how you continue to lead us uh, during our interim time. As always, we thank you for Pastor Don, his guidance, his wisdom, his experience, and how you have used him to just keep us pointed in the right direction. But Lord, as he said Sunday night, uh, Father, maybe this is... Maybe this is our time to play offense for a few months. And so I pray you give wisdom and uh, courage, Lord, to reach out and step out and for us to try some things and do some new things as a church as we prepare for a new pastor. Uh, Lord, we do lift up our search team to you. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, you would just... Continue to guide them, Lord, comfort them as they are no doubt still just a few weeks out from the stunning news that their candidate wasn't coming. But Lord, uh, they were following you and we know you're pleased with that. And so Father, I pray you would keep them encouraged and Lord, uh, that you would use them and guide them until uh, you've shown them uh, who you have uh, for our church to be our next pastor. So Lord, as we look at your word tonight, I just ask you to speak to us through it as you promise us you will do. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, so we're still in the miracles of Matthew. And so I'm going to start. I'm going to jog your memories. You know how it's less so now with uh, all the streaming services, this happens, it's a little less common than it was like 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, before all the streaming services, that, that the, the networks would uh, have their big cliffhangers like in May, and then they'd show reruns all summer, and then long about July or August, they would start pumping up all these new exciting shows they had for us uh, come September. And sometimes they would hit a home run and they'd land on one that would be around for seasons and seasons. And sometimes they'd throw one out there in September and it'd be gone by Christmas, right? That was just kind of the pattern they had. Well, there was this one, and this has probably been at least 20 years ago. Uh, But it it has stuck with me because the the premise was so interesting. Uh, 
It was almost 20 years ago, and it was ABC, and it was a show they were premiering that year called Blind Justice. I never saw it. Do any of you remember that? I'm betting not. I'm betting not because they canceled it after three episodes. <laughs> All right. Uh, but I, w- I still remember being intrigued by the show's premise because this was the story of a police detective who lost his sight in an accident. And he was unwilling to take a desk job. And so he got a guide dog and went back to work as a detective. And now he had to rely on all of his other senses to solve the crimes. And inevitably, he would pick up on clues and nuances uh, in the case that all the other sighted detectives, is that the right word? All the other sighted detectives missed. And he would solve the crime because he had to rely on all his other senses. And so the idea of that program, the whole three weeks that it lasted, was that even though he couldn't see physically, he actually saw more than many people who had 2020 vision, right? It's kind of clever, kind of a clever concept. But you know what? It's not terribly original of a concept because as long ago as the New Testament, there were two blind men on the outskirts of Jericho who saw more than scores of sighted people all around them, uh, now, we know from Mark's account of this same story, and we'll, we'll refer to him some tonight too, even though we're technically in Matthew, we'll refer to Mark some. Uh, one of them was named Bartimaeus, and we don't know the other one's name. Uh, but they saw what other people couldn't see. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. Now, we're in the concluding weeks of this study on Jesus' miracles um, but this is one that you will find in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all uh, make reference to this. And Matthew tells us these things happened on the outskirts of Jericho, so a few miles beyond uh, the boundaries of Jerusalem. He encounters the blind men, Bartimaeus and the other one, their physical blindness here standing in contrast to the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees and of people like the rich young ruler, and at times even Jesus' 12 disciples, as we read through the Gospels. And so from their example, we see the kind of a faith response that Jesus expects and deserves from those of us who would call ourselves his disciples. So if you'll grant me a little latitude tonight, we're going to talk about the, the blind men and their interaction with Jesus and what we can learn from that, but I want to keep bringing it back to the notion of discipleship or the theme of discipleship, all right? So in Matthew chapter 20, this is one of the shorter accounts of the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, which is really interesting when I'm going to pause here. This is just free. It's just totally unrelated, but Mark's usually the shortest one. Mark usually gives you fewer details. Mark usually gives you the shortest account. So it's really interesting to me here that Matthew's is actually shorter than Mark's account uh, in this instance. But I don't know that it means anything. I just thought it was interesting. 
Uh, all right, so Matthew chapter 20, verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Okay. Now this is the last healing miracle that we have recorded uh, prior to the events of the Passion Week. It's the last healing that we're going to encounter. These two men were real people with a real disability whom Jesus really healed, right? You've come to the wrong place if we want to try to explain away any of Jesus' miracles uh, using natural phenomenon. I'm not your guy, right? I believe they were really blind and he really healed them, okay? And so uh, they are more, though, than just two more people who receive physical healing from Jesus along the way. They're more than that, as we read on in our story. Uh, their response to Jesus, we already just hinted at this, their response to Jesus stands in marked contrast to that of the Pharisees' response to Jesus or the rich young ruler's response to Jesus. I keep pointing those out because in all the synoptics, those, those encounters have already occurred where the Pharisees have tried to trick him with their questions or where the rich young ruler had said, what do I have to do? And he says, leave it all behind and follow me. And he said, mm, I can't do that. And so we see in these two blind men, these two men that society had left behind, that society had forgotten about probably, that no doubt treated them worse than they would treat other people. In their response, we see such a marked difference between the religious leaders and the man who had plenty. And so we see in their encounter, we see what I referred to as a pattern of discipleship. Now, I know discipleship's a lifelong process. You only have to keep being a disciple until one of two things happens, right? Then you're off the hook. You know what those two things are? You can stop being a disciple when you die or when Jesus comes back. But until then, it's a lifelong process. But yet in this, in this brief interaction, we see some really important principles so, about discipleship. And, and there's some el six elements here that I believe are just as instructive for we who are 21st century believers as they were in the first century. And the first one I want you to see is this. Um, we see that there's a desperate awareness of the problem. There's a desperate awareness of the problem. In verses 29 and 30, we read that when the men realized that it was Jesus who was traveling through Jericho and creating the large crowd, we read that they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. 
And down in verse 33, after Jesus had acknowledged them and asked them, what, what do you want? They said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. So we get some sense of their desperation that they felt, their own understanding of the desperation by the way they cry out to him, and they clearly understood what their need was. Let our eyes be opened. Let our eyes be opened. And this plea, have mercy on me, that we read in verse uh, 31, and then again, uh, 30, both places, 30 and 31, have mercy on me. Have mercy was in keeping with Jewish tradition. This was a common refrain throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, especially in the Psalms. I'll just give you one example. Psalm chapter 4 and verse 1. The psalmist cries out to God in his time of trouble, have mercy on me and hear my prayer. And so they're emulating here in this moment and crying out to Jesus in this way what they had learned from the Hebrew scriptures about how to cry out to God in your moment of desperation, in your moment of need. So their cries indicated their own awareness of their own need. But notice that when the crowd tries to silence them, what do they do? 31, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but what? Oh, they cried out all the more. They cried louder. Their persistence and their escalating cries reveals something about how they understood the desperation of their need in this critical moment in their lives. I mean... I don't mean to be glib, but they're blind. So they don't know that they're going to get another encounter with Jesus like this, right? And maybe he'd walk past them times, other times before, and they didn't even realize it. But in this moment, they've realized it, and they're taking advantage of the situation, and they don't know that they're going to get another opportunity later on. And so they're, in this moment, they needed him to intervene in their lives. So they were desperately aware of the problem they faced. Now contrast that again, like we said, to the Pharisees or other religious leaders that had encountered Jesus along the way who had no idea how blind they really were. Oh, Jesus, hypothetically... What about a divorce in this very specific situation over here, which seems to have no good answer? You know, always trying to trick him, never realizing how spiritually blind they were. Tricking and trapping him into saying the wrong thing, never recognizing or realizing their own need for the forgiveness of sin that he would soon be purchasing with his own blood. Unlike these two blind men, they were content to remain blind. And so, speaking of discipleship, if, we, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, then like these two blind men at Jericho, the first step, and I, I believe we've all come to this point or we wouldn't be here tonight, is to be desperately aware of our problem, of our need. Ours is a sin problem, humanity's separating us from a holy God with whom we were created to have fellowship but can't have fellowship the way for which we were created. Why? Because of our own sin. And until we're desperately aware of that problem and our own inability to solve it for ourselves, 
will never cry out to God for the solution. You see, where the Pharisees never reached that point of realization, Bartimaeus and the other blind men, these two blind men at Jericho, they did. They saw it. They saw the moment. They realized what it was. And they had that desperate awareness because he is the only one to whom we can turn for salvation and forgiveness. And so we see that that, and then we move on. And uh, I don't often do a lot of alliteration. It just so happens to be a little bit here tonight. There's a divine initiation of the solution. A divine initiation of the solution. I want you to notice here in verse 30, uh, what do they refer to him? Who, how, what title do they use for him here in this passage? Son of David. Son of David. This is a messianic title. All right? Uh, some Old Testament references. Uh, Isaiah 11, verse 1, uh, referring to the coming promised Messiah, speaks to an offshoot of Jesse. And y'all remember who Jesse was? Whose father was Jesse? David's father. And then Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 23. uh, Let me just read that one because I don't want you to write it down and then go back and go, well, that doesn't say son of David. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Now, what do we know about Ezekiel? Was the prophet during what time period of the Old Testament? The Babylonian exile, all right? So by the time Ezekiel is getting this word from the Lord and and writing these things down, uh, King David, the human person, is long off the scene. And so he's getting this uh, prophecy from the Lord. He's getting this word from the Lord uh, to share. And, and it begins with saying all of the bad things that the, the shepherds of Israel, how they haven't followed the Lord. And he says, I'm going to fix it myself. He's telling Ezekiel to tell the people this. I'm going to fix it myself. And I'm going to send a shepherd. He's referring to the Messiah. And he's calling him David. And we know that David the king was gone. And so again, this idea of someone from the house of David or someone in the lineage of David. And so these two blind men call out to to Jesus now, son of David, they're recognizing him to be this long-awaited Messiah, you know? Uh, This is only one of a few instances where this title is used of Jesus uh, in the New Testament. Now, Matthew uses a few more. Let me stop. Matthew's gospel records or recounts for us a few more instances of the use of this title than Mark and Luke does. And that makes sense when we understand something about the background of each of the synoptic gospels, you know, that... uh, Matthew's was written very specifically for a Jewish audience, so it stands to reason that he would have included a few more references to Son of David. But even then, it's not many. More more often than not, Son of Man. Uh, 
And so it was used infrequently as a title for Jesus in the Gospels. One other instance is in the triumphal entry. This is also recounted in Matthew. As in Matthew's account of the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, I don't know that they called it Palm Sunday then, but I'm just giving you, like, you know what I mean. We call it Palm Sunday. They call it the triumphal entry. But as Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem, riding on the back of the donkey, and the people are shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David. Ooh, that made the religious leaders really angry to hear that, to hear that that way. Uh, but they were recognizing him. Jesus once used it of himself, which, by the way, that also made the religious leaders really angry. Uh, <clears throat> Old Simeon over in Luke chapter 2 doesn't use the title son of David exactly when he meets the young Jesus in the temple and dedicates him. But uh, in his prayer of blessing, he refers to him as being the offspring of David. So he's recognizing uh, that. And so all of those instances have those messianic implications uh, in a lot more obvious settings. You know, triumphal entry, Hosanna, son of David. You know, we, we, we kind of expect that the people will holler that out for Jesus at that particular moment in time. Or this, this old man who'd been promised, you won't die until you see the promised Savior. And he finally sees him and he holds him up and he prays this blessing. We, we kind of expect to hear that there, right? Walking down the street and there's two blind beggars lay over there and they're calling out, son of David. That's not where you'd necessarily expect. But yet that's exactly what's going on. They saw that Jesus, the blind man, saw that Jesus was their long-ago promised Messiah, Savior of Israel. So they saw what so many of the sighted people couldn't see, and that is that Jesus wasn't just a healer. He wasn't just an inspiring teacher. He was, in fact, their Messiah, the Son of David, for whom they'd been waiting so long. How did they know that? The Bible doesn't tell us how they knew that exactly. I believe, and I believe the witness of Scripture would bear this out, I believe God himself revealed it to them. I believe something supernatural happened inside of these two men, in these two men, that helped them to see. You know why I say that? Because that's the same thing that happens any of us, anytime we begin to understand that Jesus is our only hope for salvation, it's because the Holy Spirit is working in us and opening our eyes to God's truth. So there's divine work, but divine work doesn't, doesn't stop with their understanding of who Jesus was. It doesn't, the divine work doesn't stop with their recognition of who Jesus was, the, the Messiah. Uh, look over for a second to Mark's account of this story in Mark chapter 10. And that's going to be verse 49, because many of these details are the same. They rebuked them, telling them to be silent, so they cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy. And then in verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, Call him. 
Jesus stopped and said, Colin, Colin, Colin over here. I read that, it reminds me of the instance in Mark chapter 1 where Jesus sees James and John mending their nets over there on the shore and the Bible says he called them and they left their nets and their father and they went after him. Or we read the Old Testament and we see that it was God who initiated the covenants. It's God who reminded his people through the prophet Hosea, I called you out of Egypt. In the New Testament, we so often see Jesus taking the initiative and calling people to be his disciples. Folks, God himself initiated the solution to our deepest problem. In eternity past, he initiated the solution. He promised that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. He sent the Son into the world at the appointed hour. He still opens people's blind eyes to the truth of the gospel, and he still calls men and women and boys and girls to come out from the crowds and come into relationship with himself. We must be aware of the problem. We've got to know that the problem exists. I have to understand that I'm not rightly related to God, and I need a Savior, son of David, and I have to also be aware that I am completely unable to come up with the solution on my own. And this is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from so many world religions, right? In so many world religions, you can, you can try to, you can kind of, you work for it to try to appease God. You try to do enough good to appease God's wrath or to placate God's wrath. Or, and even in one very large Christian tradition, it's a balancing act. My sins were wiped away when I was a baby and now I have the rest of my life to try to get my good to outweigh my bad and hope that when I get to the stand before the throne, my good will, my good will out. Y'all, you want to see what mine would look like? It's not even close, right? I know I have no hope, no hope whatsoever because I know myself, right, better than any one of y'all know me. I have no hope of salvation outside of Jesus Christ. And the truth is, none of us do. And those guys recognize that that day. And a part of our process of discipleship is recognizing that we have no hope outside of Christ. I must rely on what God designed and initiated uh, in eternity past when he made this plan to send the Savior to die for our sins. So aware of the problem, aware we're completely unable to come up with a solution on our own, but we praise God that he initiated the solution when we couldn't. Which brings us back to our two blind men and the pattern we see taking shape here in our text because after this divine initiation of the solution, hey, call him over here. Call him over here. The people were content to say, y'all be quiet. Don't bug Jesus. You know? No, call him over, just like he did the little children. So many times. We see an obedient response to the invitation. There are really two sides of the same coin. The divine initiation and the obedient response. You can't separate them. Um, they're two heads and tails, right, in a way. An obedient response to the invitation. We're going to stay in Mark's account for, for another minute. Why doesn't Mark identify both of them? I don't know. You know, Mark just keeps saying he and him and Bartimaeus. And Matthew and Luke catch on the fact there were two guys there. Mark's written first, you know. Um, 
Maybe Matthew came along and remembered, oh, wait, there was a second guy there. I don't know. I don't know why, but it's the same account. It doesn't change our confidence in Scripture one iota um, for that. But the people say, he's calling you. Call him over here. Hey, he's calling you. I can hear. I just can't see. I heard him. Uh, And what does it say he does? He immediately comes. Oh, where is it? He's calling you, throwing off his cloak. He sprang up and came to Jesus. That's verse uh, 50. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up. I like that. Jumped up and came to Jesus. What did the Bible say when Jesus called James and John? What did they do? They left their nets behind. You know when they left their nets behind, they were leaving their job behind, right? Their means of income, their family, daddy's boat, they're leaving it all behind and follow Jesus. When he told Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree in Luke chapter 19, what does Zacchaeus do? Well, I kind of need to hang out up here because those people, they don't like me very much and I might have to get all their money back. No, he says, come down out of that tree. What does Zacchaeus do? He comes down out of the tree. You know, he tells Saul of Tarsus, go to Damascus and wait for instructions. What does Saul of Tarsus do? He went to Damascus and he waited for instructions. And here he calls the two blind men, specifically Bartimaeus and Mark's count, come over here. So what does he do? He springs up and he goes over there to him. So even in the presence of that divine initiative, we see the human response. Divine initiative, human response. This is the pattern all throughout Scripture. I don't have the faith of Abraham. I'm just going to be brutally honest. You know, Genesis, first part of Genesis ends with Babel. You know, Genesis 1 through 11 ends with the Babel scene. And the people had been so proud and they're trying to go, they're going to build this ziggurat and they're going to go all the way up to heaven and they're going to be so great. God says, no, we can't let that happen. We can't let that happen. So what does he do? He scatters the people. He confuses all their languages. And that's how the first half or the first section, whatever you want to call it, Act 1, that's how Act 1 of Genesis ends. Man, that's so hopeful, isn't it, Pastor? And so God scattered all the people all over the world and he messed up all their language so they couldn't understand each other anymore. The end of Act 1, drop the curtain. Raise the house lights, go get a snack. I mean, how depressing is that? But then what happens next in Genesis God says, there's this guy over here, Abraham. And what did he do? He says, Abraham. He called Abraham. Uh, you go down there to that place I'm going to show you later. But get moving. And Abraham did it. Isn't that great? I mean, that's faith, y'all. Where, am I, where was I going with that? Human response, human response. The divine initiative and the human response, I mean, we see it going all the way back, even before Abraham, but that's kind of where God's dealing with people and this sacrificial covenantal thing kind of began. So divine initiative, human response, divine initiative, human response. And so... That's why Jesus can say confidently in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, 
You know, there were people who showed interest in Jesus, were fascinated by his miracles, but never obediently followed him because why? They weren't his disciples. They were there for the show. But like Bartimaeus, like the other blind man, when Jesus calls, disciples follow. And so now we come to the fourth, fourth thought here, and that is that where there's in this discipleship uh, model, we have to have a sacrifice of self and security. Sacrifice of self and security. That's, that's really the most alliteration you're usually going to get from me right there. That's a lot of S's. Sacrifice of self and security. Please grant me a little bit of latitude here, okay? So I want to call your attention to something. We're still in the Mark's version now. Mark's account in, in, in verse 50 of chapter 10. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Now, you, throwing off his cloak almost gives us this idea of like he had a coat on and he jumped up and just took his jacket off and ran to Jesus, right? Let me give you another, I'm going to regret this because I won't be able to get up. I'll give you another thought here. Okay. Gary, I don't play golf every week. I'm down here, and I've got my cloak spread out in front of me, pulled up around me, and this idea I'm throwing off my cloak. Don't think of taking off my jacket. Picture it. He threw off his cloak. Can y'all see that? That's why I said grant me a little bit of latitude. Uh, picturing it that way now. All right. Not a single creak or pop. Picturing it that way, think of it as this outer garment that he might have spread out in the ground around himself and in front of himself in order to receive the alms. Right, pastoring down outside of New Orleans, we used to go down there very often just to get beignets and watch crazy people do crazy people things. And it would be very common to see a singer or a guitar player just standing on the street singing, and where's his guitar case? Right out in front of him. And is it closed? No, it's open. Why? Because that's the way you know people would throw their change in there or their dollar bills or whatever. So. Imagine then the cloak out in front of him collecting the alms as the people would pass by and throw their coins, their alms to the poor. In that case, throwing off his cloak and coming to Jesus, he's not just leaving something inconsequential behind to come to Jesus. If we're right in that interpretation, he's leaving behind not just a winter coat, but he's leaving behind any of the change he would have collected while he'd been sitting there that day begging. So it's not inaccurate to say this man left everything of value that he owned to follow when Jesus called. You remember what Jesus told the rich young ruler? It's in this same chapter in Mark, back up in verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him 
and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Right? He couldn't do it. Now compare the response of the rich young ruler who said, well, I can do anything but that to this man when Jesus said, come, come here. Now you're thinking, well, he had less to leave behind. Well, maybe so. Maybe he had less to leave behind, so we might then reply, so what he did have was more valuable to him. But how much he left behind isn't really the point. Um, the point is that he apparently was willing to leave behind what little bit of security he did have. All right? He left it. He left everything but the clothes on his back when he left his cloak and those few pennies when Jesus called. Folks, he doesn't expect us all to be pauper, paupers, but he does call us to abandon what security we think we have in the stuff of this world to come and follow him. Can I say that again? He doesn't necessarily call us to be paupers, but he calls us to abandon our security in those things when he calls us to come and follow him. It's a mark of genuine discipleship when we can say, I will sacrifice my security that I find in all of these things, and I will sacrifice them on the altar of faith in Jesus to provide. You know, that's, that's what's going on there. And so we, still, we see that willingness to sacrifice self and security. Uh, and then we can flip back to Matthew 20 now because what we see then also is a, a radical transformation. We see a radical transformation. For the two men, this meant the restoration of their sight. For the two men, it meant the restoration of of their sight. Verse 34, and Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight. Immediately. See, Matthew's borrowing Mark's word now. Immediately they recovered their sight. Uh, but folks, Jesus is doing more than just healing their eyes in this moment. What Jesus is doing when it says he took pity on them and he, he touched their eyes and they immediately recovered their sight Jesus is showing anybody who was paying attention that they had been correct when they called out to him, son of David. You see that? He was the promised son of David who would be their long-awaited Messiah. He was the fulfillment of Isaiah 42, 16. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. It's a fulfillment. So he's showing, he's not just healing their eyes. He's showing anybody that had eyes to see and ears to hear, they were right about me. I am he for whom you've been waiting, right? It had been a secret for a long time. Uh, he, he, he'd kept that a secret for, for a while, but now it's no longer a secret. He's about to enter Jerusalem for the final stage of his life and his ministry, and now it was time to proclaim his true identity to anyone who had ears to hear. Look, look back at Mark 10 real fast. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. The Greek word therefore made you well is sozo. 
So another way you could translate that is, go your way, your faith has saved you. You see, Jesus came for so much more than simply to heal the physical infirmities. He came to save people. He was the Messiah. He was there to save. Not in the military political way that they were thinking necessarily, most of them. But he came to save the people from the penalty of their sins. Look at Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that's why we can say that when there is genuine discipleship, there is a radical transformation because when we are regenerated and renewed, we take on a new nature in union with Christ. How did Paul say it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And this may be among the most truly outward indications of genuine discipleship. The change that takes place in the life of a believer or the changes that take place in the life of a believer are as radically different as sight and blindness. That's, that's what Jesus was doing with this miracle. He wasn't just saying, yeah, I have power to heal. See, Boop. now they can see. He's saying, yep, they're right. I am he, I am son of David. And in following me, he was giving sight to any blind person who would but follow and believe in faith, right? The changes that take place in the life of a believer are as radically different as sight and blindness. And the two blind men, now they could see the power of Christ over their lives was obvious to anyone they encountered. Weren't you? Weren't you sitting over there begging for money yesterday because you're blind? Yeah. What are you doing in my shop today? I can see. Well, it's pretty self-evident. It was obvious to anyone they encountered, as it should be for modern disciples as well. As it should be for modern disciples as well. When Christ is alive in a person and the Holy Spirit is active in a life, the changes in our priorities and our attitudes and our behavior should be as obvious to onlookers as the difference between sight and blindness were to those first century people that day. Let me repeat that. When Christ is alive in a person and the Holy Spirit is active in a life, the changes in priorities, attitudes, and behaviors should be as obvious to onlookers as the difference between sight and blindness were that day. Because wherever there are disciples, there are lives that have been radically transformed. And then we see a final mark of discipleship in this encounter, uh, and we'll just call it enduring loyalty to the Savior. What's the last, last little phrase of the, of the story? They followed him. They followed him. Immediately, verse 34, after receiving their sight, they followed Jesus on the way. No mention of going back to collect their stuff. No mention of waiting until some other areas of their life were cleaned up. You all have heard this one, right? 
I got to get some other stuff worked out first. What? You can't work it out. <laughs> With that, I mean, like, you can't. He can work it out. We get that backwards sometimes, but we hear that. I got to get some other stuff worked out first. Nope, they didn't say that. No mention of that, just, just a commitment. They followed the Savior. John chapter 10. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And what do they do? They follow me. Now, my sheep hear my voice. This is not, this is not about hearing audible voices. It's about obedience and loyalty. My sheep follow me. They immediately receive their sight and they follow Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I just do this sometimes so y'all can see the way Scripture always backs up Scripture. Because, I mean, what else do we have? 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer what? Might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for the sake, their sake died and was raised. Right Now I live for him, following him, living for him. Uh, in the famous work by Alexander Dumas, the Count of Monte Cristo. Now, I will confess to you, having never read the full-length version of Alexander Dumas, Count of Monte Cristo, but I have seen the 2002 film adaptation of the book. And in the 2002 film adaptation of the book, there's this scene on the beach where the main character, uh, Edmond Dantes, is put to the test against a pirate named Jacopo. And I don't remember exactly what he did, but he had been uh, sentenced to life as well, Jacopo had. And so just for fun, the pirates were putting uh, Edmond Dantes and Jacopo, uh, they were going to make them fight to the death. They were going to make them fight to the death. And in the scene as it plays out, not only does Edmond Dantes not kill Jacopo, but he ends up saving his life. And so now Jacopo is technically free, and technically free, he tells Edmond Dantes, I swear on my family, as long as I live, I am your man. He just had his freedom won for him by someone else. Does that sound familiar? And he says, I swear on my family, as long as I live, I am your man. And then he spends the rest of his life in the story loyally serving the man who saved his life. That's the kind of loyalty we owe our Savior. And it's not for our salvation. We don't gain it or earn it. It's the loyalty that just 
flows out of a heart of gratitude for what Christ did for us. These two men were healed and they followed Jesus. What other response could we have as disciples? Were the whole realm of nature mine? That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, what? My all. And so if blind Bartimaeus and his companion that day help us only to see one thing, let it be this, that a genuine disciple's life will be marked by enduring loyalty to the one who sacrificed his life to save ours. So you see, we can learn so much from the blind men who help us see. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior. Thank you that when we cry out, have mercy on me, O son of David, you do. And you still do to people who make that cry and make that prayer. And so, Lord, I pray that the change that you bring in our lives will be as evident to onlookers as the difference between sight and blindness. And, Lord, I pray that out of a heart of gratitude, we will do like these two and simply follow. Wherever you lead, let us follow. Give us, give us, Lord, grant us the enduring loyalty that you so deserve. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Terry, you're next week? Yes. Terry's next week? Then what? So next, is this the last of Matthew? Yes. Well, sort of. Yes. They're both in Matthew. And what's next week for us? It is the transfiguration. I was just testing you. Uh, and then we're going to we're gonna break from the miracles, per se, in the last week of our semester, because, you know, all of y'all are grade school aged. The last week of our semester, uh, we're going to do Matthew 28, 19, and 20, which is a great commission. And that'll conclude our time, because then we'll have an ESL dinner and some things going on. And so two more weeks of this Bible study until the fall. All right. Pastor, anything for the group tonight before we're dismissed? Well, thank you for letting me teach. All right, y'all have a great night. We get at 10 minutes early. Listen, I could never do a 24-minute sermon.